Polish-Australian Business Forum presents Unity Stories about us Twenty twenty two marks fifty years of diplomatic relations between Poland and Australia. I am Leonie Tillman, and I'll be interviewing ten notable Australians of Polish heritage across business, science, and the arts about their stories. We now invite you to celebrate our unity. Stories about us. Professor Severin Ostowski has had an incredible career defending civil and human rights in Poland and Australia. He was the Australian Human Rights Commissioner between 2000 and 2005. He's won numerous awards, most notably in Australia, the Medal of the Order of Australia, and he later became a member of the Order of Australia. And in Poland, he was awarded the Solidarity Medal and later presented with the Officer's Cross of the Order of Merit by the Polish President. I asked him what the starting point for him was in moving in this direction. The starting point is really the upbringing. It's really my motivations. It's really my way of seeing the world. And of course, it's not a single factor, it's quite complex influences I'd been under, but allow me to mention three different factors. First, certainly there is family tradition, which was very important for me, and uh, part of it is experience living in communist Poland. I, for example, witnessed the June 1956 insurrection. I had uh, personal experiences with the communist regime. I'd been arrested twice, uh, first in March 68, after I took part in demonstrations and they got me, didn't run fast enough to escape. And then a colleague reported to me from university that I have a Orwell's book in 1984, so the Uber or as bears, it was called, and came to my apartment, searched it, and kept me uh, for uh, over 24 hours <laughs> trying to find out about it. And there was also plenty of of uh, problems with uh, traveling or with maintaining an, an international contacts. Then, of course, my academic interests are the second important factor. I was interested in issues of democracy, civil rights, justice. I uh, studied not only law, uh, but also I studied sociology in Poland, both of them at the same time. And the third factor, it was uh, migration experience. And it's quite important experience because uh, when I came to Australia, I was really searching for equality of opportunity. I wanted to achieve exactly the same position and the same career path as I had in Poland. And I was also looking for participation, full participation in Australian society. I just didn't like to be a migrant which lives on a margin on a society which looks only material well-being. I wanted to be a full citizen of Australia. 
One of the most notable contributions Professor Ozdowski has made has been as the Australian Human Rights Commissioner and Disability Discrimination Commissioner. I asked him what went through his mind when he first heard about the appointment. Well, when I learned in uh, 2000 uh, that uh, I got uh, that position, it certainly was a, a big surprise. I knew I'm, uh, I'm uh, properly prepared to take it. I was very proud of it, uh, but I had ma major doubts whether I could make it. And one of the key problems uh, was immigration detention at that stage. And it's the area where I focused very much in the early stages of my career. I spent over three years working on immigration detention. And at that stage, the immigration detention was mandatory for all boat arrivals. And there was no limit in time how long people would spend in detention. I understood really uh, that it's not only about compliance with international human rights standards, but it's very much about winning the public opinion in support of a change. It's battle of hearts and minds. And then I decided to focus on children. And children, because they are innocent, they do not carry stereotypes, and also there was about 10,000 of detainees in immigration detention centers who were adults. Uh, but around that stage, there was about 2,000 children in immigration detention. And when I looked at the time they were spending in immigration detention, I think on average it was about one and a half a year. But there was plenty of children who spent more than two years in immigration detention. And there was also one child would spend almost five years. I started with calling for public submissions. They, then I conducted public hearings in all capital cities. I also went to all detention centers. I examined the witnesses and witnesses, including the secretary of the Department of Immigration, but also detainees who were in immigration detention centers. And all of it, all these public hearings were happening in front of media cameras and were reported on daily basis. So when I finished the report, and you can see it, it's quite a huge book, it's 500 pages, and when the report was presented in the parliament, government felt very uncomfortable. And usually the attacks against human rights reports were that they have mistakes that are not accurate. I didn't allow uh, for facts to go into the report which didn't have two sources confirming them. So it was accurate. So the impact was tremendous. And what happened, the Howard government released the children and families within a month of tabling my report. It was done on quiet without big fanfare, but it's happened also a whole range of practices which we had legal practices has changed. Allow me to add that this visit to detention centers were very traumatic. They still impact on me when I think about them. You were meeting people who were in desperate situation, quite often with their mental health deteriorated. You were seeing children 
who were uh, emotionally impacted and sometimes mentally ill. You were seeing families which were quite often divided. It was very, very disturbing and it certainly impacted on me. Uh, the second major thing, it was the mental health inquiry and it was called not for service. It was called not for service because <clears throat> we were getting uh, quite a number of complaints that people with mental health problems went to hospital and in hospital they uh, determined uh, that they are not enough sick, so they are not eligible uh, to get a hospital service, send them back on the streets, and only after, and I heard of cases, a uh, person broke a few hundred windows in Canberra city centre or walk against the traffic on major highway, then they were taken to hospital and provided um, uh, support. And what was interesting, Minister Abbott said, well, it's not a problem to federal government, state responsibility, but three days later, Prime Minister Howard came and announced in parliament special budgetary measures. And for the first time ever, the mental health was included into Medicare schedule. Then also I was involved with a number of smaller uh, projects. Uh, for example, we were getting complaints from a military, from soldiers, officers, alleging discrimination in military service. Uh, so I went and uh, met General Cosgrove, who at that stage was head of Australian Defence Force, and uh, I said, well, listen, we need to, uh, to do something about it. Otherwise, I'm calling uh, uh, a public inquiry about what's happening. And at that stage, General Crossgrove responded, said, well, listen, it's not uh, only up to me. I better talk to the Minister for Defence. Minister Hill at that stage, and uh, then I spoke to Minister Hill and said, I will talk to Big Boss, the Prime Minister Howard, and uh, then they changed uh, the rules, which was, which was very, very positive, and it was especially around people uh, who were gay and lesbian in military service. There was also a number of other uh, smaller uh, reports, uh, but it was a very interesting time and it was a very impactful time. It was a time where I was able to make a good uh, contribution to Australia. It is incredible. I mean, when I think back over that, just to summarise, that's children in immigration detention, it's mental health, it's disability, it's LGBTIQ, it's criminal record and employment. And and I've also noted that you did some work with age discrimination as well. It's such a lot to grapple with over a five-year period. It feels like such a short term. It was. Well, age discrimination, it was rather working on legislation and, uh, and it was a few meetings with Prime Minister Howard to discuss it. It was much more complex legislation than we really think because it doesn't really deal only with aged people but with very useful people and how you can limit uh, their participation in the society through legislation. And I think what you're telling me, I'm trying to read between the lines here, but you're saying that you're actually trying to bring about this change which is not necessarily in the public awareness and it's not necessarily in the government's desire to do anything about it at this particular time. So you're working really quite independently and you have quite a lot of power at that time. 
how did it how did that feel and how did you how did you learn to to use that to really bring about that change uh, you you have plenty of power that's fact but remember you are also big target the if you are a pass breaker the government doesn't always like what you do and quite often the public doesn't like what you do so you are very very vulnerable uh, to attacks and uh, and you've got to be very careful and ensure that if you go after something and especially if you make public statements you are sure that what you are saying is factually correct uh, so uh, so it was difficult time i had a small team of people helping me with it uh, but yes, uh, yes, it was a work to change Australia. And situation, legal situation was reasonably weak because you see Australia signed and ratified international covenant on civil and political rights. But Australia didn't include it into uh, domestic legislation. It's a very different uh, story about discrimination against women, sex discrimination or disability discrimination or a whole range of other uh, UN um, um, uh, conventions, human rights conventions, for example, a racial discrimination convention. But uh, international covenant of civil and political rights is not into ILO. And Australia is the only country in the Western world which doesn't have a Bill of Rights. It's difficult to believe it, but we don't have it. Americans have it, the English have it, New Zealanders have it, Canadians have it. We don't have it. And therefore, legally speaking, it was quite difficult to work. And do you think this is a, a role for future human rights commissioners in Australia to, to change such things? Well, you would require a referendum uh, in order to change constitution, uh, but you could get... Uh, the international covenant on civil and political rights implemented through legislation. And uh, I think that uh, the commissioner, every future commissioner, needs to think about it and uh, needs to win uh, that uh, battle for heart and mind uh, so the government will be ready either to introduce the legislation or to go to referendum. Yeah, this is interesting. You, you spoke a lot about the the battle for hearts and minds, and that makes me think a lot about how how we tell this story, how we can tell stories of discrimination, and and bring about the awareness of the people. And that's where I guess the democracy of of a country like Australia, we we have to tell those stories so that people get passionate about it, so they call for change, so they you know bring in the right the right leaders to do something about it. Yes, because you see, when you look uh, at democracy, technically it's a rule of majority, but practically it is how majority handles minorities. Yeah, it is really the core of democracy, and uh, and uh, minorities are not always that popular with the majoritarian population, but they've got rights, and their rights have got to be protected. Engage with the United Nations through that period, including working on the new UN Convention on Rights for People with Disabilities. He shares more on that experience. 
it was uh, one of more pleasant uh, jobs I had uh, as a commissioner because it involved quite much of travel to New York, Geneva, Bangkok, uh, staying in a good hotel, meeting <laughs> with good people and so on. So it was fun. Uh, but the key reason I was going to, it was negotiations regarding the new UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So after I finished being a commissioner, it's in a way continued either through my conferences on human rights education or from uh, work um, with individual countries. Uh, but it was uh, I was appointed as an expert to go and help them. And I'd like to move back now away from your amazing career and and go into your your youth and your childhood in Poland a little bit more. Could you tell me a little bit about your family and life growing up in Poland? Yes, uh, you see, uh, my father and his family uh, came uh, from agricultural background, they owned and managed large uh, agricultural enterprises uh, until uh, Germans came in September 79. They managed uh, uh, a property in Roszków near Jarocin in Western Poland. It was large property, it was over a thousand hectares and looking at family taxation books in 38, it brought over 100,000 US dollars uh, after tax uh, profit. So it was, it was quite much money at that time. They were also quite socially active, uh, involved with uh, mainly Catholic movements, but also offering a whole range of scholarships. And later, what was interesting, I was meeting with some of beneficiaries uh, one of them, Ted Krzyżanowski, became vice president of Singer Company in the United States. Looking at my mother's family, they were part of significant merchant family. And Yarochin, they owned few shops and they owned distribution of petrol for Yarochin region. They were again devoted to Catholics. Uh, they, uh, for example, provided the land and significant donation to establish a new Catholic church in the center of Yarochin. Similar thing in October 39, all of them arrested, 15 minutes to pack, 6 o'clock in the morning, wow. uh, and uh, taken to transit car, and then deported to Opochno. After war, my mother finished biology. Uh, they had five children. My father was always saying that we've got to rebuild biological substance of <laughs> Polish. <laughs> so, so as you see, this was quite mixed background, and it was a background uh, where I dealt plenty with uh, political movement, uh, but also plenty with human suffering, uh, human suffering in terms of poverty, which was uh, being experienced by my family, but also political oppression, uh, but also with, with poverty of other people, because we were not that well off, but still people were coming to us 
and uh, trying uh, to to get help. I guess I can't even imagine what it must have been like for you coming to Australia at that time and leaving all of that behind and, and starting again in Australia. How did that happen and how did you feel about seeing Australia? I always wanted to travel and my mother was the big biggest stop uh, because uh, I first thought when I was about 16, uh, then when I finished my high school certificate, I said, I'm running away. And my mother said, don't be stupid, finish study. If you go to the West only with high school certificate, no one would like to talk to you. Uh, so uh, so uh, I finished my study, then I, ha- I have one more year to finish second degree. Uh, and then I said, I'm going, and my mother said, no, no, you've got to do first PhD. But uh, this time I didn't listen to my mother and uh, took my wife, and we ran away. And we initially wanted to uh, leave Poland for about five, six years, do the traditional hippie trip from Europe through India to Australia, and then possibly Latin America up to North America and return. But when we stopped in Hamburg to uh, end some money for our India trip, uh, our passports were not extended. Uh, So we applied for extension and Pauls told us uh, that unless we are willing uh, to meet uh, with, with consular officials once a month to talk about things of common interest, uh, our passport won't be extended. So we came uh, to Australia on uh, German, uh, German travel uh, documents. We, we didn't ask for asylum there. We just couldn't force ourselves uh, to ask Germans for asylum. Uh, but we came here and in a way we looked very much where to go. We considered, of course, U.S., Canada, New Zealand, uh, South Africa. We chose Australia rather than U.S., Canada, and so on, because it was a new country. We didn't like to stay in Europe, in Germany, France. It would require waiting two, three generations to become a German or Frenchman. Uh, So we were looking for a new country. We looked at U.S., uh, but it was involved with Vietnam, and some Poles who migrated there ended up on plane from Hawaii and were getting U.S. citizenship on the plane. We were not interested also. We didn't like communists very much. Yeah. We didn't like to go to Vietnam. Canada was too cold. Plus, I spoke with Professor Adam Bromke, uh, who told me, don't, uh, don't come uh, to Canada because uh, there is plenty of Americans who run from military service and stay in Canada, and there's plenty of intelligentsia coming from UK because of economic crisis there. So if you come to Canada, you will spend the rest of your life in a factory. Uh, Generally, we look at South Africa, and after visiting the South African consulate, it was just disgusting. It was like going to a communist uh, office. So Australia. And uh, uh, because it was new country, it has it had British institutions. We like democracy. We like also economic, sound economy of Australia, good climate, and also far away from Europe, which was <laughs> at stage one of one of important things. Uh, so we arrived here uh, in uh, June seventy five, 
And I remember arriving in Australia first, we really thought seriously if we had made a right choice. First, the plane dipped around over to Sydney and we saw Western suburbs, plenty of the small houses with red tin roofs. And then we went in a very old bus from the airport to Villaud Migration Reception Center. And then we went for a walk from Migration Center and the pram we brought from Germany lost a wheel and it couldn't be repaired. And then we went shopping and they were giving us paper bags and in Germany they were plastic bags. So we saw bloody hell to where, where did we come? <laughs> But then, in a way, normality started taking over. First, we've got an independent little apartment in this uh, Westbridge hostel, which was a major thing because in Germany, we always rented one room uh, from somebody. So finally, we were on our own. Uh, Then uh, intensive English language started. Then my wife managed to get a job. You see, she was an engineer working in timber technology from Poland, and she got a job as a quality technician in Ralph Simon's factory, which was producing plywood. And then she fixed me a job on night shift to press plywood. Uh, so, So we had some money coming. And then I managed with an introduction from Professor George Zuzicki, a job for three months contract with Ali Stey at the School of Law, Department of Jurisprudence at the University of Sydney. And it was really an opener because when I was working there, I started applying for scholarships and I've got PhD scholarship from University of New England. So I went there, did my scholarship, then I've got my first job in Canberra with Attorney General's department because my PhD was about family law act, so they wanted a specialist in this area. And basically, it's how it started. So it was one thing after another. You just kept your options open, really, and connected with the right people in order to get your career moving. Very much so, but also you are pragmatic. And uh, yes, you are all the time searching for opportunities. You just don't give up. Yes, if they close one door, uh, you go to another door. I ask him now on reflection how he could compare his career in Europe with that in Australia. It was much easier than my life in uh, Poland or in Germany. In Germany, it was stable. It was, I reached a certain level. I was earning decent money over there, but there was no abut mobility. There was extremely important to uh, find a, a job which would uh, use my intellect rather than my hands. In Australia, I must say, it went very fast. And, uh, and uh, also my English was rather poor. Uh, I managed to move much faster and uh, therefore, therefore Australia was such a good choice. And thinking back to that young man leaving Poland, did you ever imagine you would have achieved all these things? No, no, I was rather prepared uh, that uh, I will spend most of my life as a working man, uh, but uh, I preferred 
to be free outside of Poland uh, than being in Poland. And in Poland at that stage, before I departed, I worked at the Institute of Legal Sciences of Polish Academy of Sciences. And I worked on a very, very interesting project because it was a project trying to establish why there was this uh, workers' rebellion in uh, the cities uh, of uh, Szczecin, Gdańsk, Gdynia in uh, 1970. It was the first major government finance sociological research in Poland. And in a way, our research predicted solidarity. What's interesting, we didn't know it will be called solidarity, but found the mechanism which were indicating that there is a working class rebellion because of lack of satisfaction with the establishment and that this rebellion is driven by younger workers who are having full professional qualifications and who are also educated in communist ideology that they are the ruling class. But when it was coming for them uh, to have any say in management of factory, uh, they were marginalized. And clearly, uh, clearly it was happening, it was visible to, to our researchers. Mm. And now all this time later, you are still working with with Poland and, and building relations between Poland and Australia. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing on the Polish side of your career? Well, well, it went through a few different stages, including uh, asking uh, that Wałęsa uh, be nominated for Nobel Peace Prize or calling for boycott of Olympics in, in uh, Moscow. So, so I wasn't very popular. I was also asking in a whole range of different organizations. I established a committee on Polish family reunion because when martial law happened in Poland, many men who escaped first uh, to see how it goes and to get their families couldn't get their families. Then, of course, uh, post-89, uh, it's changed. It was very much a work to help to rebuild Poland. I remember and at that stage I was working in the department of uh, Prime Minister Cabinet uh, running economic section and uh, drafting and printing on departmental uh, computers, printers, about uh, 200 letters to key enterprises uh, that were to be signed by Polish ambassador uh, and uh, and uh, seeking cooperation and investment in Poland. Thanks God uh, I didn't lose a job because of doing it. But, but I did after hours, so it was fair. I guess what's really, really astonishing to me is that you really stopped at nothing to bring about change. Not at nothing. I didn't break any laws. Yes, I, 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 I work within the law. Then, then I ran the first uh, trade mission to Australia from Gunoshlonski Bank to Varove. Uh, and of course, work closely with establishment. And then after it was established, Australian Institute of Polish Affairs. Uh, which, which in a way was very important in terms of work which we were doing because it built the relationship between Poland and Australia because 
We've got uh, people like Hanna Suchotska, former Prime Minister of Poland, of Jan Krzysztof Bielecki, also former Prime Minister, Adam Michnik, Jan Karski, the one who reported on extermination of Jews uh, to Americans, uh, Jan Nowak-Rzewanski, who was head of Radio Free Europe, uh, Stefan Kisielewski, and also organized or co-organized uh, visit of Lech Wałęsa to Australia. It was extremely, extremely interesting, yes, to go uh, for meetings, for example, with uh, Lech Wałęsa to Prime Minister Howard, or taking uh, taking Adam Michnik, for example, to Gareth Evans, foreign minister, could tell you plenty of stories about it. But it was very, very important work. And you see, um, after also uh, 89, I slowed down my work for Polish organizations. And uh, there were really two reasons for it. One the reason it was uh, that this overwhelming goal of independence of Poland disappear and there was plenty of partisan interest and I didn't like to be entering this individual fight and also Poland as it became independent and uh, grew in strength and its democracy grew, there was uh, less place for people like me uh, to be arguing for it or fighting for it. So this new stage came, which which uh, really involves uh, work on academic level. I organized, for example, international conference. One I organized altogether nine of them about human rights education. One in Krakow, uh, Poland. Then uh, I brought to Australia a whole range of finance and supported bringing to Australia a whole range of. Polish academics uh, for either participation in conferences or for longer periods of time. I'm also now on a range of advisory uh, boards for Polish uh, academic journals dealing with sociology, with political sciences. So over the time, the involvement with Poland changed significantly. And so looking back over all of those experiences and even now with the work that you do on boards and the awards you've won and the work you've you've created, what is this standout thing that you're most proud of? Uh, it's possibly uh, difficult to point to one thing. I would suggest then on general level, I'm very proud of uh, helping to build a better society in Australia, more caring society in Australia. Uh, but I'm also very proud of my work uh, to help with independence of Poland. And uh, looking at particular projects, we spoke about the children in immigration detention. It was very good. Huge contribution to multicultural affairs. Uh, starting uh, with uh, drafting uh, the first national agenda for multicultural Australia. I'm still uh, the longest serving chair of Australian Multicultural Council, which involves plenty on influence still today. Also contributing to centenary of Federation of Australia. Yeah, I drafted most of the report with John Kerner, who was former Premier of Victoria, about how to celebrate. And when you look, for example, at the rail uh, from Alice Springs to Darwin, or 
at uh, Federation Square. And they were two investments which we recommended <laughs> in my report. Of course, John Kerner was the driving force here. I didn't have an imagination that we could impose such a huge expenditure on our budget. Uh, but uh, but uh, and, and Paul Keating didn't like very much the recommendation at that stage. Uh, but but yes, there's whole whole range of projects which 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 I'm very proud of, and also uh, bringing uh, Jan Karski, Lech Wałęska, Michnik, others to Australia to introduce them uh, to Australian public and especially in Parliament House or arranging for Suhoska lecture at National Press Club. Uh, it impacted, and uh, for example, getting the vaccines from Poland and now links to this, to this good relationship which we've been building over the years. And I think your own personal values are coming through very strongly after all of these stories and, and the legacy that you've left. But if we look more at the Polish and Australian values more inherently, how would you describe them? Are they similar? Are they different? My Polish and Australian careers are very much interlinked that when I started to work in opposition to Polish People's Republic authorities, and then solidarity came, plenty of Australians supported solidarity movement. I remember helping to put an advertisement into the Australian after martial law was introduced in Poland. We had, I don't know, close to a thousand people in Australia who were somebody in this society. And what's interesting is every one of them had to pay $20 to be to put their name on the advertisement because we didn't have the money to do it, and they did it. So what it means, the Australians were supporting Polish independence and solidarity movement. Being one of the persons who was a leader at the stage fighting for this independence was giving me access to top echelons of Australian society. And it helped me later with my career, with my movement, because my name became known, I became known, and people were willing to listen to me. So there is this funny, funny and difficult to believe connection that in a way my work for Poland to abolish communists in a way serve also my advancement in terms of career in Australian society. It's interesting. Sometimes things are unpredictable and how they do work. It's an incredible legacy that you've left. Professor Severin Ozdowski, thank you so much for sharing your stories. It's a pleasure and thank you for talking. For more information on this project, go to pabf.com.au. This podcast was brought to you by the Polish Embassy in Australia, Polish Investment and Trade Agency, Polaron, the Freedom and Democracy Foundation, English for Business and SBS Radio. This was put together by Marchmade Collective.